I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5 as we continue our study. We'll be looking at verses 17 through chapter 6, verse 2. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. I'd like to read part of this as we begin. Paul writes that the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of a double honor especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. And all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. And those who have believing masters are are not to show less respect for them, because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better, because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. Let's pray. Father, as we think of this passage of Scripture this morning, would you guide us by your Spirit and help us to see how these things, even though our circumstances may be different than they were in Timothy's day, apply to us and the principles of your Word remain the same. Father, I pray that as a church we would honor you in the way that we conduct ourselves in your house. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been said that as the leaders go, so goes the nation. And we see that in our country. Whether it's through the leadership of our president or Congress or officials that we elect, they have a great influence upon our whole nation for good or for evil. But the same is also true of the church. A church will not rise above the vision and character of its leaders. So it shouldn't surprise us again as we look at this passage of Scripture that Paul is going to have something to say about leadership in the church and how that impacts the ministry, about what is expected of those leaders in terms of what they bring to the church and how they serve Jesus Christ. In fact, Ray Stedman, who's a beloved pastor who passed away a number of years ago, uh, wrote this. He said to get a church operating as it ought is more important than maintaining good schools or electing strong officials to office or building a sound economic base in this country. It is far more important than developing our natural resources or controlling crime. All of those things are very important, and millions of dollars and many, many hours are devoted to them. Yet with all my heart, I say that they are less important than getting a church functioning the way it ought to. That's a strong statement, isn't it? And why would he say that? Why would he say that it's more important to get the church 
functioning correctly than it is to do all of those other things that do affect our society. It's because if the church is right with God and if the church is functioning as as it should, then its members will have that kind of savoring influence in our world that will indeed touch our government, our schools, our neighborhoods, our businesses, the places where we live and work. That was true in the founding of our nation as godly believers had an influence upon our country in the way that it was established. But it is still true today. And this morning we're going to be looking at two different subjects under this heading. We're going to talk about leadership in the church on the one side and we're going to talk about ministry in the marketplace on the other hand. Well, let's look first of all at what Paul has to say here about leadership in the church. He tells us that there are three different areas that we need to be concerned about in the church when it comes to leadership. And the first is with the care of elders, and we see that in verses 17 and 18. We've already talked about the requirements for elders in chapter 3 and what is expected of them there. But here he tells us uh, even more clearly that that the church is to be led by a team of elders. And their primary duties are to lead and to teach. The word elders here is plural, and he's talking about those who direct the affairs of the church, those who are involved in overseeing the ministry. Now, in our church, some of those elders do that on a volunteer basis. They have other jobs just like you. They're working full-time at their other work, and they volunteer their time here to the church to serve as elders and leaders, giving oversight to what we do. But in the church from the very beginning, there have been those that God has called into ministry on a full-time basis. Those elders we call pastors. And they work and serve in the church as their primary vocation and calling. We know from the scripture that leadership in the church is not like leadership in the world often is. It is not autocratic where the leader says, okay, I'm the boss, this is it, you need to do this, you know, no matter what. It's not that kind of leadership that orders people to do this or that or that lords it over others. Leadership in the church is much more by example. It is servant leadership. The model that Jesus gave us is of a shepherd. And a shepherd doesn't drive people. He leads them. He goes before them and he sets the example. That's why Peter said... and. 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3, he said, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. And not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. A shepherd goes before his flock and he sets the pace. He sets the example. And whether or not people follow depends upon how much respect and trust he has built by his personal character, his abilities, his example, and his love. You see, leadership in the church is built upon that kind of trust. You need to be able to trust us as elders who lead the church that the decisions that we make are godly, 
that they are appropriate for the church at this time and place in ministry, that Christ has has been leading us as we have prayed and brought those things before him, and as we have listened to you as a congregation and the needs and concerns that you have. It really is a two-way relationship that is built upon trust. And trust needs to be earned and carried out. And uh, leadership needs to be by example. We need to model the things that we are asking of you. And that's why Paul says that the elders who do that well are worthy of a double honor. Now what does that mean? What does it mean when he says that uh, they are worthy of a double honor? Well, the word honor here uh, means both respect, and that's the first honor, and the second honor refers to remuneration or the way that elders are compensated for what they do. The word honor, back at the time that this was written, had to do with material compensation. In verse 3, when it said uh, that we were to give proper recognition to those widows who were really in need, and we talked about that last week, and Uh, the care of widows and how some were put on a roll and supported financially by the church. Really how that uh, could also read, verse 3 could also read, give proper compensation to those widows who are really in need. Because that word honor had both meanings. Uh, You can think of this too in our English language. Our word honorarium comes from this word here in Greek. And it means to pay someone for their services. To give them an honorarium is to pay them for what they have done. So when we think about leadership in the church here, he is saying that those who serve well in the church are worthy of that kind of double honor. They are worthy of respect and they are worthy of being paid appropriately. And he gives a couple examples that come first from the Old Testament and also from what Jesus said. Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. In other words, that ox that was working on the treadmill should be allowed to eat the fruit of what he is treading out. And Jesus said, the worker deserves his wages. So very on in the church, we had this uh, ministry established where the church would support those who would work full-time in ministry. And they would do that with an attitude of mutual respect. Sometimes this can be a difficult subject for a pastor to preach on because it can seem self-serving to even talk about it. What makes it easier here is that you have done this well. You have shown respect to those of us who have served in the congregation here. And you've done that in many different ways. When I was in seminary, one of my professors uh, urged us as a class to have a keeper's file in our, in our uh, file cabinet. And that keeper's file was to be for those kind of thank you notes that you may receive along the way or uh, something that was done or that you wanted to remember that was special because he said there are going to be those days when you aren't going to feel appreciated and things are going to be tough and maybe you need to pull one of those out on occasion. Well, I want to tell you that I've never had to do that. I have felt well appreciated by your words of kindness and thanks all along the way. And yeah, that's not to say that there haven't been tough things that we've had to work through or difficult days. But I want to thank you for the affirmation that you have given, not just to me, but to all of us who serve on our staff. It means a lot. The attitude and tone that you use when speaking, the understanding of the nature of the work, 
the prayer support that you give and the partnership that you have in ministry all means a tremendous amount to each of us. And in terms of compensation, I appreciate how that is handled in our church. It is reviewed and recommendations are made by the elders and the finance ministry team that oversees that. And there are guidelines that they use in establishing how we are compensated. And all of that is done in a way that I believe really honors the Lord. And I thank you for that. It gives us tremendous freedom in ministry when we don't have to worry about those things. And the focus of our time and energy can be upon the task that God has called us to in ministry to the people who are in need in our congregation. It's why Paul said that the care of leaders is an important aspect of what the church is to do. But there are also times when in a church, leaders may need to be disciplined. To whom much is given, much is required, and leadership is a high and a holy calling. So what do you do when a pastor or an elder sins? And we are talking about something here that is major. It's not the minor kinds of things that all of us may deal with, but something that is major, where church discipline needs to be exercised. He said in verse uh, 19, he said, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. And those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. What Paul is saying here is that where there are matters of concern that are brought up against an elder, first of all, get the facts straight. Don't entertain an accusation unless the facts can be substantiated. And that needs to be checked out. That is because more than once a pastor or church leader has been falsely accused. And in ministry, even a false accusation can leave lasting damage. People expect more of pastors and Christian leaders, and rightly so, and so we have to be careful. And that's why when it comes to things like counseling appointments, we have windows on our doors. Or we will keep a door open if we need to. That's why in terms of meeting with someone uh, or how we handle uh, ministry opportunities or meeting with the opposite sex, we are very careful in how we handle all of those situations because even a false accusation can hurt. I think of both Billy Graham and Chuck Colson. I have heard speak about this through the years and how for those men that are in very high profile in our country, there are times when people have actually tried to set them up for failure. And uh, Billy Graham has very high standards and kept those through the years. You know, And if he was going to stay in a motel room or things like that, he would have someone else check out the room first to make sure that no one was there. He'd have someone else you know, uh, uh, check out places where he was going to be just in order to preempt anything that someone else might try to do to bring a grounds of accusation against him. And I appreciate the honor and respect that has been shown to him by others through the years. There was a time when Billy Graham was meeting fairly regularly with Richard Nixon as a counsel to the president. And then the scandal of Watergate broke and Richard Nixon would not see him for a long time. And Billy Graham tried to initiate, wanted to get together with him, to pray with him. 
And finally, after several months of being put off, Richard Nixon sent word to Billy Graham that the reason he did not want to see him was that he did not want him tarnished in any way by what had happened in Watergate. He had that much respect for Billy Graham and his ministry that he did not want to see that tarnished by any kind of photos or situations that might appear to be compromising. I appreciate that. Regardless of what we feel about those actions and what he did, and they were wrong, um, it was interesting to hear that comment on his part of wanting to respect this man whom God has used in our country for many, many years. Those who are sin, those who do sin, Paul tells us here, though, are to be rebuked publicly. Once again, it is best to follow Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, that tells us that, first of all, we should go privately and confront our brother where there is sin. If he won't listen, then bring two or three others with, so that every fact can be established by others as witnesses. If it's a minor offense, it can be handled privately. If it's a serious offense, then it must be done publicly. And Paul says, so that the church will know and so that others will take warning. But even when it is done publicly, it doesn't mean that all the details need to be shared. Often it is simply stated as infidelity or a breach of trust or a moral indiscretion. And people know what is meant. And I can tell you as a pastor, it is heartbreaking every time it happens. And just a week ago, I learned of another person that I knew in ministry who has fallen. I have friends who are out of ministry because of it. And I have seen their gifts in preaching and teaching and leadership and church planting be set on a shelf and put aside because of sin. And I grieve over the loss of their gifts and the damage that is done to the church and to their family and to themselves personally. It is a serious work that God has called us to. I have heard the statistic, and it's one of those that I question because it seems to be quite severe, but I've heard the statistic that only one out of ten who begin in ministry finish in ministry. And many step aside because of choices made along the way or because of the difficult nature of the work, but many are removed from ministry because of moral failure in their life. I hope that statistic is wrong. I hope it's much better than that. But my intent, my aim, is to run this race well until the very end. Thirdly, Paul says that where discipline is practiced, discipline is to be done without partiality. Verse 21. He reminds us that everything we do in the church is done in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. We are to keep these instructions without partiality. And we are to do nothing out of favoritism. That's a sobering statement, isn't it? That everything we do, we do in the sight of God. Our ministry, our teaching, the preaching that takes place here, the work that's done in our church. But that's also true in our homes. That God is present there. That if we invited Christ into our life, Christ is present in our homes. And He sees all that happens there as well. 
sometimes when it comes to church discipline, there are those in a church who will say, well, shouldn't we just forgive and go on? I mean, isn't that the Christian thing to do? And yes, we are to forgive. And yes, we are to move on. But sometimes sin is so serious that there needs to be consequences and boundaries put in place. If sin is dealt with lightly, it will often be repeated. And we have heard more than enough of the clergy scandals, clergy abuse among Catholic priests, multiple affairs by unrepentant pastors. It just happens way too often. And if things are not dealt with, they will simply move on and do the same thing again. I know of a situation where there was a pastor who had an affair in one church and then he moved on to another church. And then when the denomination exercised church discipline on him, he simply went outside the denomination and in time started a Bible study. And the thing is setting up to happen all over again. Because he simply moves. And the sin has never been dealt with in his life. We need to be careful how we discipline. And to do that fairly and appropriately for what the offense has been. Well, thirdly, under this heading, which is pretty sober, isn't it, all of this, he talks about the selection of leaders in verses 22 to 25. And he tells us, don't be hasty in selecting men for leadership, and you can see why. In verse 22, he said, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The laying on of hands was the way that church uh, leaders were ordained in that day. We still do that today. When a man is ordained for ministry, we will have those who are elders or leaders or mentors come and lay their hands upon that pastor as they pray for him in his ordination. When you do that, there is an implied endorsement, in a sense, by the denomination affirming that this man has been approved for ministry. There's an endorsement by those individuals who lay their hands on this person and pray for him. And if that individual is not qualified or if that individual does something foolish, it reflects on all of us to an extent. And that's why Paul said, don't be hasty to do this. In verses 24 and 25, he said the sins of some men are obvious. It disqualifies them immediately, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. It might not be as obvious, but it will come out in time. And in the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Paul is saying, give this process some time. Because over time, as you see a person's life, you will see their character. You'll see the kind of person they are and their faithfulness in ministry. And then ordain them for the work that God has called them to. In the Evangelical Free Church, ordination is a three-year process. When you graduate from seminary, you come out, and as you are called to an area of ministry, uh, you write a paper that is reviewed. It's for licensing, and you meet with those who will govern that and oversee that process. And then over the next two to three years, you are doing additional reading and study in areas that you're directed. We have mentors who help people through that process. And it comes to a final paper that you write on doctrine and on questions that come up in the church in a various uh, range of topics. And then you are reviewed by an ordination council that is one of those times where you are really grilled. 
Sometimes I feel like everybody who serves on that ordination council just simply brings their toughest question to ask. Maybe something they've been wrestling with. And they examine you for ministry. There's a letter of recommendation that's asked for from your church. Do you see in this individual the gifts and the calling of God on their life? And then if you pass all of that, then you are given an ordination that is kept in trust. And as long as you are faithful to the ministry, that ordination continues to follow you wherever you may be called to serve. And I want to tell you, I'm very thankful for that process. It is tough, it is rigorous, but it serves the church well in trying to prevent the things that do on occasion happen in ministry. Ministry is a high and holy calling, as I said, and it deserves the very best that we can give it. And it deserves the very best in our efforts, in our support, and in our prayers. This is a teamwork, and you share in that by your support and prayer of us who are staff. And I want to thank those of you that are part of our uh, prayer ministry that pray for us each week. You are a blessing to us, and we need it. So Paul writes about leadership, that it's important for the church to function properly, to have godly leaders who will share in that vision and ministry. But each of us are also called to ministry. Ministry in the church and ministry in the marketplace. And I want to look at that briefly here. In verses 1 and 2, Paul talked about those who were slaves at that time. And it's a different world in which we live. I mean, uh, when we look at slavery in the Roman Empire, I have read that somewhere between 30 to 33% of the people at that time were slaves. Some put it as high as 50% of all the people living in the Roman Empire were slaves. I think that's a little bit too high. But it shows that maybe we don't really know exactly. And most put it in that range of about one-third. Slavery has often been degrading and dehumanizing. Maybe it always has. But slavery, as I understand it, in the Roman Empire, for some, was not nearly as cruel as it was in America. Many had the opportunity to purchase their freedom after seven years. They would work for someone as an indentured servant, and they could purchase their freedom and then do what they wished. They could, uh, after that, have the rights and freedom of freed men. And one half of all slaves were free by the age of 30 because of that as they worked for their freedom. Well, what happened in the church was that there were people then who were converted that were both slaves and slave owners. What should they do? How do they get along? How do they worship and pray together in the church? And what should their attitude be toward one another? And rather than call for an immediate end to slavery, the Scriptures do not do that here. Paul's concern in writing this was that they treat one another fairly, appropriately, In fact, he urged them to live their lives in such a way that others would be drawn to Christ. And by their witness and by the gospel, the seeds were planted within society that eventually would lead to the removal of slavery in many nations in our world. So how does this apply to us? We aren't slaves, but we do have to work. 
And some of us may feel like you are indentured servants when your debts are high and you have to work to pay those things off. The principles still apply. Paul tells us that our conduct in the marketplace influences others. To the unbeliever, our work is a reflection on the character of God and the truth of His Word. Everything that we do as a believer, when we are known as a believer, other people see that. And they expect of us honesty, they expect of us integrity, fairness, that we would reflect the grace of Jesus Christ in all that we do. And if you were to ask Paul, well, how can I win my boss to Christ? Or how can I win a peer to Christ? Paul would say, be the best employee you can be. If you look at Titus 2, 9 and 10, he said this to those who were slaves in the church. He said, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them and not to talk back to them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. I think all of that applies to the workplace today in the sense that Paul would say, if you are working in a business, you're working for someone else, then here's what you do. Try to please them. Don't talk back to them. Instead, let them see your faith in the way that you live and work in this world. Do a good job. Don't be a whiner and a complainer. If you are a cashier, keep an honest till. If you're a construction worker, don't steal supplies from your boss. If you're an office worker, put in a full day's work and do it with joy and with grace. I think of a young man who worked one summer in a bookstore and in the course of a remodeling job that was going on there the boss asked for a volunteer to help clean out the ductwork the old ductwork that was in there it was hot and it was dusty it's a little bit like having the job of blowing insulation into an attic on a hot summer day it's not the most pleasant of jobs but he volunteered to do it and he did it cheerfully and the Lord used his witness to lead another employee to Christ who saw his attitude at work and he saw that here was a guy who wasn't a grumbler and a complainer and who served well with joy in his heart and there was something attractive about that. You may not win your boss to Christ, but you may win a peer to Christ by the way that you work. And if you work for a believer... Paul says to the believer, your work is a ministry to a fellow Christian, so serve them even better. You see, the danger here was that some might think that they could take it a little easier because their owner was a Christian. And Paul says, don't do that. Honor the Lord by giving them your very best. Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's a good word for all of us. That whatever we do, in word or deed, we are to do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. Our work is a ministry. Whether we work in church or in the schools or a business or a hospital or a restaurant or a factory or even if you are self-employed, Our work is a ministry, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ that we serve. How do you apply that in your work situation? 
And when you think about the people that you spend time with as peers, or maybe it's a boss, or maybe you are the boss and it's your employees, how do you treat them? And would Jesus be pleased with the way that you run your business or the way that you go about your work? That's a good question for all of us to ask. And if there's an attitude that needs to change or something that we've been doing that needs to change, or maybe we need to take the initiative to pray more about our work and to ask God to use us in that place. Remember that to the unbeliever, our work is a witness to the character of God and the truth of His Word. And to the believer, our work is a ministry. It's a blessing to a fellow Christian. So let's do our best to lift up and honor Jesus in our church and in our world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to serve you each and every day. Whether it's Sunday in our time that we are here at church or whether it's Monday through Friday in our work, wherever we may be. Help us to honor you and to lift you up by our words, by our deeds, by our witness. And may we be a church that is a savoring influence for Christ in this community and in our world. We ask that in Jesus' name.